This is a curious podcast. In our new series on architecture and criticism, we'll be exploring the tension between architecture and ecology through critical positions which launch each chapter. Welcome to Air Ecologies, a series by the Architectural Review. Founded in 1896, the AR has set the international architecture agenda in its pages for over 125 years. Instead of standalone interviews, AR Ecologies is set up to be episodic. You'll hear a mixture of voices weaving in and out of our conversations surrounding ecology. While architecture is the common thread that links everything together, our voices are out of orbit. They include scientists, engineers, artists, activists, writers, and more. We want to dwell in the in-between spaces of the topics we bring to the table, the gray areas that shift from anthropocentric to ecological, and with the help of our guests, hear stories we never considered before. Our first series will focus on trees in all stages of life, from seed to material, an audio counterpart to the AR's October issue. In the age of ecological emergency, trees must go beyond their limited architectural definitions. What happens when trees are discussed beyond their role as objects or material, but as a form of a spatial practice, as beings with networks, rights, connections? Trees aren't a simple solution to the problems humans have made. They hold their own agency. They are entangled with the world, and we with them, in ways that are too complex to grasp all at once but can reverberate through the perspectives we share. So, from the forests in British Columbia, to contested land in the Amazon, to the wood we use in our homes, our three chapters will travel, weaving their way through geographies and stories, all connected to trees. I'm your host, Sabrina Syed, editorial contributor and researcher at the AR. This episode is all about planting trees. Planting is widely regarded to be a positive step towards countering the climate and ecological catastrophe. We're inundated with studies, campaigns, international projects to plant billions of them to unlock this immense untapped potential of trees in all the spaces that we don't account for. But it's also a really complex and politically loaded act that can also become violent. That's because planting always, always comes back to land. And transforming land inevitably brings up questions of ownership, colonization, displacement. What are the knowledge structures we need to question in order to plant trees ecologically? I born inside trees. There is a big difference when uh, you grow up, up, you grow up in places where we have a lot of forest. And uh, our Atlantic forest was probably one of the most important forests in this planet by concentration of biodiversity. That voice is photographer and ecologist Sebastião Salgado, who, with his wife Lelia, founded Instituto Terra in his homeland of Brazil, where he replanted the forest of his childhood and now helps others in their region to do the same. Planting trees is one thing, but designing for biodiversity, authentic biodiversity, means essentially designing for an entire architecture because the forest is home to so many more, human and non-human. Foresta 
are cities of biodiversity. It's a city. A forest is complete. A forest, there is millions of uh, visitors, billions of residents. A forest is a metropolis, a real metropolis. Now, the metropolis of Salgado's childhood isn't here anymore. In fact, it disappeared years ago, destroyed by erosion. Salgado realized this when he came back after years abroad to discover a barren landscape. The forest we're talking about is the entirely new one that he replanted from scratch to restore the one that he had lost. I came back to Switzerland was a huge shock for me. This paradise that I grew up was no more there. To build this modern Brazil that is now more than 90% human, we live back to us an ecological desert. Of the farm of my parents were a desert, eroded, land destroyed. The small rivers in the farm that made nice small lakes with a lot of fish, birds were no more. They were completely full of sand provoked by erosion. All was destroyed. Not only the farm of my parents, all my region, all my state, all the Atlantic forest part. When I was a child, we had more than 70% of Atlantic forest. And now, in this moment that I speak to you, we have about 7%. The couple founded Instituto Terra in 1998, dedicated to restoring the forest in their region of Valle de Rio Doce, which used to be entirely covered by the Atlantic forest, Sebastiao describes. A region home to over 4 million people, it faces deforestation, soil erosion, water scarcity, and eviction. Planting and afforesting, in this case, was a design solution to restore and heal what was lost. But how do you afforest responsibly? to restore the level of biodiversity needed in a way that is meaningful and authentic. How many trees did Sebastião actually have to plant? To rebuild our land was necessary to plant 2,500,000 trees in order to bring back the forest. I went around this planet. We see, apply for money for Ed, and we get Ed, we started to plant, and I must tell to you, Sabrina, today, the forest is there. Not a complete forest, because you see, when you do a rehabilitation of a forest, mm -hmm. you cannot plant all the species at the same time. Planting with the aim of restoring an ecosystem is not the same as planting for the sake of timber or planting for the sake of crops a space that trees can often fall into. But in this context, Salgado actually had to design something that could live beyond him and sustain itself for the rest of its own life, something that could actually turn into an old-growth forest. But when it comes to the actual architecture of planting, the plantation itself is a built environment. So the plantation is like a built environment. Mm -hmm. In a sense, right? It's like a building in that that you take this this natural ecosystem and make a square clear cut and then plant rows of trees. Mm -hmm. But in an, in in nature, these uh, the disturbances are complex, and there's old trees left behind and plants, 
and they're not in lines. They're, they follow the contours of the land. This analogy of the plantation is something scientist and forest ecologist Suzanne Simard brought up in conversation when explaining patterns in planting. She's the author of the famous 1998 paper that coined the term the wood wide web, proving how trees establish networks of connection via fungi underground. Right. There's a there's a stream and you have different species and there's a pattern. And and yet we come in and we impose this geometric pattern that doesn't work in the landscape, that, that it actually funnels. It actually propagates disturbances. Right. It creates yeah. problems like wildfires and it creates more problems than, than it's trying to solve, really. And so they're really not. I don't think they're that different. Planting done wrong, planting done with the idea of trees just as a product, as a resource to be extracted. It's actually a very Western colonial construct to begin with. When you look at these countries here, they are very beautiful because we are very rich. We made a maquillage. We made a small forest here, small forest there. But these forests are not real forests. They are monoculture of trees. They are not from this region. They are exotic trees that we put there because they grow fast. We can have wood, but they are silent forests. There is no biodiversity inside. To have biodiversity, you must have native trees. Native trees from this region. So that's exactly what Sebastião, Lilia, and everyone who joined them in this project did. We were not specialists in rehabilitation of the forest. We are saying not uh, between brackets, ecologists. Mm-hmm. We just wish to rebuild a forest. Today, I consider that we are ecologists because rebuilding the nature, we become too close of the nature. But in this moment, our wish was to plant a forest. This wish led to an enormous knowledge spike of understanding the sequence it took to plant a forest and plant one for the long term. The trees, when you plant them, there is a sequence. When we start, our soil was disparate, destroyed, was dead soil, was dry as stone. And it was necessary to select a species of the tree that can grow in the soil. We call these trees pioneers. It's like soldiers that go to a fight. They live for 10, 15 years and after they go, they come just to guarantee the beginning of the forest. And was necessary to plant the secondaries. The sequence of events that Salgado is describing is called the sequence of forest succession. In order to establish a full ecosystem that's self-sufficient and permanent, and that can last in perpetuity, You have to plant primary trees that sacrifice themselves for establishing nutrients back into the ground, and secondary trees, and then finally, the equivalent of old growth forests, climax trees. And just this year, just now, in the last rain season, in October, we start to plant the climax. The type of forest that Sebastião has reached is the type of plantation that can actually sustain itself now over time. Finally, they've been able to reach the design stage of something that can grow into a long-term primary forest again. 
these are natural primary forests where you have big old trees that provide seed for the regeneration of next generations of trees. And it's like this continual process. It's called a climax forest in that it self-regenerates under its own canopy in perpetuity in theory. The climax are the trees that they grow all in a good soil. They grow all with shadow. The, the climax are the trees that will stay there for 1,000 years, for 2,000 oh, okay. years. That are the trees that will be huge trees that grow 50 meters high. And these trees, they grow only when we have the perfect condition. You see, when you plant a rainforest, you must be a big diversification of species. In Instituto Terra, till now, we have about 303 different species that we planted. And, uh, wow, my girl, it is a younger forest. But uh, we have jaguars that came back. We have more than 173 species of birds. We have the life that came back. The achievement of actually successfully planting and establishing a biodiverse forest is an enormous feat, especially because Sebastião and his team did not set out as experts the way that Suzanne is. As much as people talk about the value of planting, it's biodiversity that actually nails the success here. Another aspect of design, which people don't actually talk about enough when it comes to planting trees, is the actual success rate. A lot of language in architectural discourse talks about the numbers of trees they can potentially plant and achieve. What people fail to really mention is how hard it is. And it wasn't easy. Some trees grow, but we lose more than 50%, probably 60% of the plantation in the first year. And with Lelia, we were desperate because we saw these small trees coming up all then in a mountain, they started to die. Dealing with losses of numbers that are ridiculously high, especially after investing, researching, and devoting so much time to the project that is the plantation, comes with the territory. And no one really talks about that. Another discovery that Sebastian told me about was making the holes that those saplings went into a lot deeper and wider. To the plant a small tree was necessary to make a much more generous hole. A hole of 30 centimeters by 30 centimeters, at least 40 centimeters deep. Why? Because when you do this, we have soft soil. And of course, there's also the weather to account for. We can plant only in the days that were raining. Because raining with this big hole, we had this soil that was humid. They were wet. And we put the plant inside, we close, and we knew if you don't, one week, 10 days, we had no rain, the plant had humidity inside. That year, they only lost 5 to 10%. They were producing leaves, they were producing flowers, some were producing fruits, and they started to be a house of tens of species of insects that become leaves there. The birds come, was a coming back, not only the trees, was the coming back of the full life around these small trees. Sebastião is quick to credit this project. 
the rebuilding of his forest and founding Instituto Terra with his wife Lilia as the project of his lifetime. If restoring ecosystems and planting more trees at such an enormous scale is possible, especially just after speaking to someone on the experience level who had done it, why can't we design for more forests? Science tells us that there is an enormous potential to restore so much land with trees. There can be countless planting projects happening right now. But in reality, there's no way to fully discern the proportion of public or private land that's up for planting in the first place. Even agricultural land is on a spectrum, as there's a huge difference between giant corporate actors who develop acres of land and the livelihoods of local families who have been farming on the land and need it to survive. Sebastiao had his own land, the ranch where he grew up, which is critical. It allowed him to share his knowledge, grow it in a place that he already owned, and distribute it with the wider region, which is incredibly meaningful. But land is almost always contested, whether it's by private or government interests. The giant tree planting experiment and the restoration of his own ecosystem was immensely profound as an example that worked. But what would have happened if he didn't actually own that land? Brazil is one of the top six countries where more than 50% of restoration potential can be reached globally. But its forests, especially the Amazon, come into direct conflict between those who seek to exploit it and communities who have been living on that soil for centuries. The tension of who owns land and how land is managed is integral to the giant planting experiment of this decade, of this century. There's no straightforward solution with planting, though it's often presented as one, especially in design. In order to understand how complicated land is when it comes to afforesting it, we need to confront the colonial project that underpins it in the first place. Well, I think the first point to make about land in the Amazon is that it's really interesting to look at the archaeological information and studies that are coming out, because what it's showing is that it's, the Amazon has, in a sense, has always been managed, or as long as there have been human beings living there. The voice you just heard is that of Fiona Watson, Director of Research and Advocacy at Survival International. Survival works in partnership with tribal and indigenous communities to share information, campaign, lobby, advocate, and protest for their land rights across the world. They call it um, terra preta, this dark soil. Archaeologists are showing how this landscape is, is not a pristine environment, if you like, where, where people didn't used to live. They've always been, there's always been people there for, for thousands of years, and they have shaped the landscape. And nurtured it. This concept of shaping and nurturing the landscape as if it's a piece of architecture that's already there almost isn't new. What is very interesting about this uh, archaeological site, those ancient villages, is that um, if you look at them today, you know, they are really old, some of them probably from late 18th century, early 19th century. Paulo Tavares an architect, researcher, and writer based in South America, is taking me through one of his projects. The example he's describing right now is research that he's been working on on the Givante tribe, a tribe that lives in a region in Brazil called Mato Grosso. 
a densely forested biodiverse region that's also under constant threat from forest fires. Paolo's research revolves around advocating for and understanding the architectural heritage that these sites represent. In we're searching for these archaeological vestiges, um, these archaeological remains, we produce a kind of massive investigation, I would say, a very large investigation about those sites, a kind of archaeological research on this uh, complex of various villages which today manifest themselves as forests. So I think that's very important because not only is that showing this longevity and, and, and how the indigenous peoples were the first peoples there, they were the, the first stewards or the first users of the land. So, you know, how the land is used, uh, I mean, if you, I mean, we could take an example, for example, the, the Anamami people who I've worked a lot with who live on North Brazil and southern Venezuela in that border region. The Anamami live very much as part of that environment because everything has a spirit, what they call the, the shamanic spirits that inhabit all of these regions are very important to their way of seeing the world and, and also their own healing processes. So it's very much managed collectively. So you, you cut small forest gardens, you use those gardens, you, you grow your fruit and vegetables, and then the earth has to rest. These small forest gardens, this way of managing the forest as a house, a home, and a giant cosmological space, that's not separate from who you are as a human. It expands way beyond this actual geography. Suzanne Simard talked about visiting a musqueam garden in Canada and the indigenous practices that were completely different to Western ideas of managing a forest, which is more geometric. All of this conversation ties into how you design a forest. And that's exactly how she described it to me through design, planning and geometry. You know that this garden is designed around indigenous worldviews, that it's, it's not, you know, rows of crops, which is the Western way of doing things. Mm -hmm. It's actually the, you know, it's like a medicine wheel. And that at each spoke of the medicine wheel, there are groups of plants that are companion plants and they work in our different our, you know, our systems as human beings, like there's the medicine plants, there's the, um, there's the um, ceremonial tobacco and those other ceremonial plants, there's the food plants there. And so there, it's all designed to fit with nature and our, and the needs of, of people and the plants as well and the soil and which is completely, you know, it's, it's so integral with what's needed in the ecosystem and as us as part of the ecosystem, whereas Western science kind of imposes this sort of geometric pattern that they think is efficient, and yet it's not because it doesn't match with, with the ecology of the system. So you let that go fallow, and then you move and you cut other gardens. So you're constantly rotating, letting the earth rest, building new gardens. Uh, and it's, it's very often a collective activity, but you're also hunting and fishing and gathering. And so going into the forest. So for example, the Anamami use over 500 species of plant. That's a huge amount. And there are many other peoples and they use it for all sorts of things. So, so this incredible sort of invention of understanding the properties of nature and particularly plants around you. And there are many other peoples who use, you know, they, and they've developed plants. I mean, they're, you, you know, so it's a continual process. It's just every single part of the forest and all the, the birds and the animals and fish they know about and they use. And this knowledge of planting, of managing the land, 
goes beyond geography, it also manifests all the way back in time, back to the projects that Paolo was studying for the Gervante tribe, projects that are essentially looking at them as architectural heritage, when in fact they are forests. And what is really interesting about is that those remains, those sites, they manifest themselves now as patches of forests or patches of botanic formations, a collection of trees that have grown on the top of the villages. This blurring between what is architecture and what is forest can only happen when your understanding and approach of ecology is something that is inherently holistic. And while we are talking about planting and design in the lens of architecture, we need to go one layer deeper and also acknowledge the value of the indigenous knowledge that is fueling this conversation. I think of Western science, in it. it's, so, it's relatively so new to indigenous ways of knowing and indigenous science. Western science has been developed over the last you know, few hundred years. Uh, indigenous knowledge is built over thousands of years. You know, it's based on living as one with the land. It's 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 a, you know, it's it's a being in the land. It's 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 evolving with all the creatures um, to survive and to reproduce. And that reproduction is not just like physical or genetic reproduction. It's social reproduction as well to carry on our societies in healthy ways. Indigenous science looks at systems, or it it knows about systems and how each, like the blooming of the salmonberry and how that's linked to the flies that are that are emerging from the larvae that are feeding the salmon. And, and, you know, these things are all linked together and people are able to, you know, know when salmonberry flowers, that this is the when this, the salmon fry are emerging to eat the flies. And so they, they understood these connections so deeply independent, we're interdependent with them. Whereas Western science came in and says, okay, we got to take these things apart so we can understand them, make experiments so that we don't have these outside influences. We isolate things and then we can understand it. And, and we did create a lot of understanding through this reductionist process, but it was just a fragment of what we needed to know about the whole system. So, um, you know, in, in this reducing part, we, we lost sight of the system. So we've done a deep dive into the different systems of how forests are managed by indigenous communities and the actual value and importance of the indigenous knowledge that underpins these intentions, this way of design. Now let's look at the way that these forests are managed by other actors, by actors who seek to use it as a resource. What are those ways in which they're managed? The kind of model that's coming from the agribusiness sector so whether that's cattle ranching, growing soya, other cash crops, palm oil, the timber trade and the mining sector, all of this is, is extremely predatory because it, it's based on profit, quick profit, often for not very many people. So if you look at these vast cattle ranches, there'll only be one family owning a huge cattle ranch. All of this is based on consumption and destruction using, extracting, consuming land, especially with the vocabulary of planting, can also be called the age of the plantation scene. Somewhere like the Amazon is just seen as a pot of gold. It's seen there, we've got to go in and develop it. So development means roads. And if you look at those classic photographs of the Amazon in the 70s and 80s, it's what they call the fishbone pattern. So huge highways, 
bulldozed through the Amazon, which was home to indigenous peoples who were never consulted, uh, let alone give their, give, you know, gave their free prior and informed consent. They were simply bulldozed. Even if things are being planted, there's a big chance they're being planted for profit. And then you've got the monocultures that Sebastiao talked about. Inevitably, all this leads to the destruction of old growth forests and the violence enacted on indigenous communities who live there and who are stewards to that environment. It's not about let's plant trees because, you know, trees, a forest is not a collection of trees. A forest is much more than a collection of trees. It's an entire, you know, system, right? So the minute you, 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 you raise the forest to the ground, there is like many species that become also the sort of victims of their, that, that type of violence. And now actually in the Amazon, we have, you know, land grabbing. There's the, even a kind of law that they're trying to push through con- Congress, which would facilitate land grabbing. That's where people just go in and, and, and grab the land, like, like in the days of the old gold rush. So this is completely, a lot of it is out of control. And now you have a government which is actively promoting not just industrialization of the Amazon, but industrialization at whatever cost even against the law. So where indigenous territories are being mapped out, ratified under the Brazilian constitution for the exclusive use of the indigenous people, Bolsonaro and his allies don't care about this. I mean, they're simply going in there, they're actively encouraging illegal invasions because they want this land to be used for profit. Planting, tree plantations, everything surrounding the intent to put more trees in the ground because it's a land issue. It is a deeply colonial issue. There is no way around it. I think we arrived at this moment when this discussion is happening, because before, if you think about ideas of the Anthropocene, if you think about, you know, the ideas of climate change and, you know, the ways in which those questions emerged, they were very much being discussed even by cultural institutions. If you want to plant more trees, afforest land or even restore ecosystems, It's something that can't be looked at in a vacuum anymore. Looking into the way in which all these factors overlap brings with it an understanding that is much deeper of the ecological, political, and social conditions we're confronted with whenever we consider planting on land. It makes us question our intent as designers to plant in the first place. Is it a noble act? Or is it being done with an image that could erase more than it adds? Planting is always loaded with meaning. But with the social movements, with the explosion, the conventions that happened in recent years, which are challenging, you know, the systems of power, the, the perpetuation of colonial racism in our cities, in our environments, in our institutions, it, we got to the moment that we can no longer afford to discuss questions ecological without discussing colonialism, racism, environmental racism, you know, environmental injustice. We need to put this at the forefront of the agenda. Ecological justice is sharing the world's resources equally and sustainably. And fundamentally, ecological justice is respecting human diversity. Because human diversity, biodiversity, ecological diversity go hand in hand. And that's our rich tapestry of humanity, I think. That definition of ecological justice, shared by Fiona after Paolo's explanation on why colonialism is at the forefront of our climate discussion, will color the way that we look at trees in all stages of their life. From seedling, like this episode, 
all the way to their material role as a product. Planting, in particular, has always been overlapped with colonial destruction, and stewarding a forest, whether it's shepherding a new one, like Sebastião did in his home, or preserving what is there, is all about acknowledging reciprocity between how we view ourselves and how the environment shapes us in return. I would like to think that architects realize that that people are part of forests. So for me, it's intertwined. And so when you're thinking about greening or forests, it's not just the trees and all that they bring, it's the people. Thinking about architecture, how do people and forests within architecture, if architecture is thinking about how you can bring more green or forests into cities, how is that going to work with people? Because I see the two as being totally interconnected on so many levels. And it's, not, it's never been more vital for our future, actually. This interconnectedness and this intertwining is actually manifesting itself in a very real project that I spoke about with Maria Smith. Maria is the Director of Sustainability at Bureau Happold. Trained as an architect and an engineer, they explained to me the constant search for a reciprocal relationship, something that's not removed in a wilderness far away, but something that can be applied to in our actual cities, in distinctly urban built conditions. But with the themes that we've been talking about in this entire episode. We're looking at all of the land ownership of a local authority and we're mapping all of the habitats that are currently in that local authority. And then we're sort of with on the basis of that knowledge, we're looking at opportunities to increase tree planting and also for renewable energy generation. And I think it's really, really forward looking and smart to think of these things together because we need to make sure that we are sort of restoring and certainly not damaging any of those existing habitats, which are really, really precious in terms of biodiversity. Um, and that when we introduce more tree planting into this sort of existing landscape, that that isn't damaging existing habitats, but is actually sort of, you know, creating and improving the biodiversity. Not only is the land assessed in terms of how useful it could be to actually planting trees in the first place, there's like a conscious decision. It's also assessed on its potential to regenerate energy. In a way, it's a real reciprocal relationship with land, and it's something not done in the middle of forests, but done in London, done in an area that's starkly urban by architects and engineers. And then that when we are creating renewable energy, that that isn't sort of having the kind of an unintended negative consequence of actually damaging habitats and so on. And that the lands that might be brilliant for solar farms, for example, may also be much more brilliant for tree planting in that area. So, you know, just looking at these things and looking at that land management um, in terms of decarbonisation sort of together. And I think that's, that's really brilliant. Planting carefully with thought, with knowledges that aren't from one place, means an acknowledgement that the land you choose to plant on isn't inert, but it's one loaded with memory, with questions of ownership, often in a space that's contested. Designing for reciprocity means planting ecologically, and hopefully planting with a view of a lifespan that transcends our plans and is here to stay. So when we're looking at the way that we can incorporate tree planting into this overall sort of land ownership, it's about thinking about how we're sort of intertwining two networks. And, and it is intertwining rather than just like plonking another thing on, on top or just like finding a hatch pattern or just trying to like drop seeds in random places. 
it's like it's respecting the way that trees work as networks and obviously the way that energy generation works as a network. And so you have to sort of intertwine these two things around the existing build, built environment, around the existing habitats. Um, so yeah, it's a really interesting piece of work. And I think it's a really, it's a really good example of how we can incorporate that knowledge from how forests work into our own thinking about how we can trans transition our built environment into being more sustainable. Thank you for listening to AR Ecologies. You can find the link to this podcast transcript in the notes for this episode, or head to architectural-review.com for all the latest pieces uploaded to our website, including projects and essays featured in our AR October issue on trees. The AR depends on its subscribers to bring you fearless storytelling, independent critical voices, like the ones you hear in this podcast, and thought-provoking projects from around the world. Consider supporting the AR with a subscription today. Visit architectural-review.com forward slash subscriptions to find out more. Students receive 30% off.